Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Janice L. Zimmerman, MD, and Courtney R. Bruce, JDMA, about their article, A Qualitative Study Exploring Moral Distress in the ICU Team, The Importance of Unit Functionality and Intra-Team Dynamics, which will be published in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Zimmerman is a professor of clinical medicine in the Department of Medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College, adjunct professor of medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, and head of the critical care division for the Department of Medicine at the Houston Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas. Professor Bruce is an assistant professor of medicine and medical ethics at the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at Baylor College of Medicine and director of the bioethics program for the Houston Methodist Hospital System in Houston, Texas. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad we got through some of the technical difficulties and that you can both join us uh, on this podcast to discuss what I think is an important contribution to our journal regarding uh, issues of moral distress in the ICU. Thank you for having us. Thank you. To begin with, it might help the listeners to hear if each of you could describe just a little bit about your background and what led you to have some interest in exploring moral distress in the intensive care unit or perhaps elsewhere in your work. Sure. So I work as an assistant professor of medical ethics in Baylor College of Medicine, and then within the hospital I work as a clinical ethicist which means that I essentially work to address value-laden ethical issues or conflict or ethical uncertainty within primarily the hospital unit, a little bit on the nursing floor, but primarily on the unit. And I was surprised to see how many consults seemed to either originate from or at least had a pretty heavy component dealing with some moral distress issues. And I actually felt a little bit inadequate in dealing with them because I knew that there was a lot about moral distress we didn't fully understand and, and there were some complicating factors going on. So I thought maybe this would be a good occasion to learn a little bit more about it and then through that maybe learn how we can address some of those morally distressing cases that seem to arise as part of our ethics consultation volume. So it really stemmed for me at least in part through my participation in ethics consultation and work in that area. Well, this is Janice Zimmerman and I am a Critical care physician. I've been here at Mathis for seven years in the medical ICU. And I would have to say that every intensivist experiences moral distress, but probably hasn't uh, always recognized it or thought about it. And I would say that probably the involvement of Courtney and the bioethics team in our daily rounds in the ICU helped bring some of this to the forefront and allowed us to think about delving a little bit deeper into it. Interesting. It sounds like you have some ethicist presence on rounds. Maybe we can get back to that in a little bit. Yes. Courtney, or one member of the bioethics team, rounds with our medical ICU team, I would say anywhere from three to five days a week during our rounds, and it helps us pick up some of these issues early, and it also gets their involvement earlier and sometimes will allow us to... um, kind of get things taken care of before they escalate to uh, major issues. Mm -hmm. That sounds like an interesting system. Is that through other ICUs as well, or is that unique to your intensive care unit at your institution? So this is Prof. 
Professor Bruce. We do do this in about two or three different units, but I'm primarily focused in the medical intensive care unit and the transplant or cardiovascular intensive care unit. And our premise there is that if we build relationships with the families a little early on and the patients a little early on, it really helps as the case progresses and I think can mitigate a lot of the challenges that happen towards the end of the case. So it's a little bit of a proactive preventive ethics model that we try to take in ICU units where we know there's likely going to be some ethical issues. So those are your tertiary units. So that's interesting. So, so not only are you around them, but you're actually engaging with families prior to a formal ethics consultation? Well, I do wait for the invitation. So there's got to be some trigger that tells me this is going to be an uh, ethically challenging case, and I wait for some sort of invitation for the team some sort of indicator from them that, look, this, this is looking like it could be possibly complex. You might want to meet with the family or patient earlier on. So I'd say we generally have around two to three cases that we're working in the units that we happen to be rounding in. So they're cases that have been identified as being particularly ethically challenging or at least at risk for being ethically challenging. So I want to meet the family earlier on. Sure. That's neat. It's nice to hear from others about different systems that they have in, in place and learn from others. So it's, that's interesting to hear. Could perhaps you help us out with uh, some of the terms that I think would help the listeners uh, engage in this conversation further? People talk about moral distress, burnout, compassion fatigue, and wondering how they're, how they're related, how you would define moral distress in particular, and how you would identify it. Well, this is Janice Zimmerman, and I think the simple definition of moral distress is when you know the right thing to do, or the ethically preferred action to take, and something constrains you from doing it. And that might be from um, interpersonal problems or issues, as well as institutional regulations or even legal regulations. And I think the key is that this is basically knowing the right thing to do and not being able to act on it. And that's a little bit different from burnout. Certainly, Moral distress can lead to burnout, but burnout is really psychological, physical, emotional fatigue that really occurs from prolonged stress, might be physical exertion for long periods of time. So they are related, but they are distinct. And you kind of alluded to this earlier. Would you say that most ethical dilemmas have an element of moral distress from your experience, or is it more perhaps there's a small fraction of the ethical dilemmas that you see? I think it's probably a small fraction of the ethical dilemmas. This is Professor Bruce. It's actually a little distinct from the classic ethical dilemma in the sense that with the classic ethical dilemma, the healthcare professional recognizes two mutually opposing courses of action and just doesn't know which one to take. With moral distress, the professional has identified the ethically preferable or appropriate course of action to take, but just can't take it because of some sort of internal or external constraint. So in that way, it's a little bit different. So I would say with many ethical dilemmas, there's probably maybe a facet of moral distress, but it's not really surfacing in a really apparent way. When it really hits to the surface, I'd say maybe a fraction of cases, I can tell that, boy, moral distress is not only an issue in this case, it actually might be the driving force in the case. In other words, maybe 15%, 20% of cases, I think that the ethical dilemma is actually a small portion of the case, and it's actually the moral distress that's driving it. So a minority, but it's, it's a sizable minority. Yeah, I wonder, as I, as I think about some of the ethical 
dilemmas we see and uh, the ethics consultations that uh, we obtain, both in the ICU and outside the ICU. I, I guess I, th- in some regards, I think of many of them as not necessarily having an ethical dilemma and more so communication issues and differences of a of opinion. So it's not necessarily choosing one right versus a wrong or. So I, I wonder if it is a higher percentage, or again, I think different institutions have perhaps a different flavor depending on how proactive one might be. Yeah, I guess it really depends on how you would classify communication issues. I think there are quite a few people that would say communication issues really aren't ethical issues at all. I'm actually of a little bit of a different opinion. I think that communication gaps can really create a lot of ethical issues, not necessarily kind of a classic ethical dilemma, but an ethical issue. So thinking in that way, I guess I would perceive moral distress as being a little bit of a lower percentage, but I think it really depends on your conceptualization of communication and whether that constitutes an ethical issue or not. I see. And I guess a lot of the literature regarding moral distress really began focusing on nurses, and I think understandably so, and I think nurses are often felt to be in the middle between uh, the physicians and, and patient families and spend a lot of time with direct care and in involvement with uh, patients. Has that been expanded or how, how do we, are we able to truly measure moral distress in others? Do the scales and assessments correlate from one profession to another? For the longest time, it was thought to be a very nursing-centric concept. It was only measured with nurses for the longest time, and I think that was stemming from the hierarchical structures that existed within the hospital. So it was thought that because nurses were in some ways perceived as having to take orders from physicians, et cetera, that maybe they might be most vulnerable to moral distress. But then recently, and I'd say it's really been quite recent, maybe in the past five, seven years, the emphasis has shifted onto looking at other healthcare professionals. And we've really learned that everyone, every sort of healthcare professional experiences moral distress to some degree. But it's going to manifest differently depending on the healthcare professional and their disciplinary background. And it's going to probably be experienced differently in terms of intensity and frequency. And that's something we don't quite have our hands on yet. Um, I know several people are working in this area to try to figure out where there are distinctions between healthcare professionals. Is it more frequent with nurses? Is it greater intensity with nurses? How does that compare to chaplains and social workers and physicians? I don't think we fully understand it yet, but I know that we do know that all healthcare professionals, regardless of their background, are going to experience moral distress. It's just going to manifest differently and it's going to impact them in very different ways. Understandable. If you can tell us a little bit about how you chose to design the study and what, in kind of a general hypothesis, what were you planning on looking for as you uh, began the study? Well, this is Janice. I think our hypothesis was that in the critical care environment that the actual team itself played a role as a source of moral distress or at least impacting moral distress. And I think we were also concerned that perhaps the culture of different ICUs would also impact moral distress differently and maybe how it's manifested differently. Right. We were particularly interested in team-based models and how they might affect moral distress with the idea that team-based models are a little bit of a a newer phenomenon. And it could create some opportunities to really enhance patient care but also negatively affect it in terms of coordinating care, assignment of responsibility, communication gaps. We thought those were really rich areas to explore as potential sources for moral distress. 
as we get into some of the results you alluded to, some looking at differences between the uh, ICUs, I have to disclose that I am a surgeon and surgical intensivist, so should try and be kind. <laughs> well, well, first, I, you know, in summary, I think I, I should commend you. It's not a usual phenomenon that we see a qualitative uh, study in many of our journals, um, but in critical care medicine in particular. So I thought it to be a wonderful study, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that our editorial team chose to accept it and publish it because I think it really contributes quite a bit. As you were listening to the interviews and coding and trying to look at themes, what did start to surprise you about what you found? and Or, or I guess, vice versa, what, what type of things did you expect that you both did find and didn't find? Well, there are a couple of things that were um, from the results, but also something that we found during the process of the interviews. First of all, just from the results, the very significant role of the intra-team affordance was perhaps more so than what we had expected, and also the coping behaviors, both the maladaptive and the constructive, how those kind of fell into fairly, um, I would say, nicely defined categories and also describing how those behaviors were used in, I would say, in an adaptive manner, progressing from one behavior to another was something that we had not anticipated. But I think what we also saw in the interviews, and I wasn't one of the people interviewing them, but I could see it in the language that came through in the recordings, the sheer intensity and magnitude of emotions that was expressed by the interviewers, interviewees was totally unexpected. People were crying during the interview, and the wording was often very blunt, very harsh terms were used, and I think it really brought home the fact that clearly moral distress impacts these professionals perhaps even more than we suspected, and it became a very personal thing for many of them during these interviews. Yeah, I'd like to add to that. As Dr. Zimmerman said, the process of the interviews just really, really surprised us. We had a research assistant doing the interview. She's an anthropologist by background. She's very used to sensitivity and emotionality, and she was just blown away. In fact, she said she didn't know what to do during the interviews because they repeatedly started crying, and she was trying to attend to the, the emotional aspects while still trying to get the, the candor with which they were speaking. And I don't know if it's the questions we asked or the privacy that we gave them or because we asked them to recall specific cases, but sometimes when you would ask them to recall a specific case, their eyes would sort of gloss over they would crook their head back, and it was like they were transported to the time and place in which the case happened. And it was to see that sort of vivid detail in which they would describe the case and sort of telegraphic detail told me there was profound moral distress. And although we were not looking for intensity or frequency of it, it was palpable. And how we were going to try to attend to that while still getting the sorts of data that we thought would be useful was just it was a balance for us. We felt like we had to stop the interview sometimes, come back to it, give them a breather. Sometimes we just terminated the interview altogether because I thought or the research assistant or whoever was conducting the interview thought it was just too much for them. And that is something I didn't expect. And we, we all do our quite a bit of qualitative interviewing, and it threw us off. It sounds like an intense experience on all parts and all levels. I was wondering, one, are there, are there scales or measures of degree of moral distress such that one could evaluate 
the degree from practitioner to practitioner? We do have some instruments. They do have their limitations. One of the most well-known and most widely used instruments was developed by Mary Corley back in the early 2000s. The problem or the limitation with the instrument, I, I have to tell you, it's got a lot of great things going for it. It's very comprehensive. It's been used time and time again in various studies with tremendous replicability. So it's a very good instrument. It's validated, et cetera. But there are some limitations with it in that it's older. So some of the root sources of moral distress are a little bit antiquated. And it's got a heavy emphasis on nurses. So it's not nearly as useful for other healthcare professionals. And the other limitation with that instrument is it's probably measuring cumulative moral distress, depending on when the instrument is administered with the healthcare professional. You really want to get real-time moral distress as the case is unfolding, rather than getting cumulative moral distress. Because if it's cumulative, you can't tease it apart. You don't know whether some of that's just emotional distress or just psychological distress or whether that truly is moral distress. And that really leads to, I think, a blurring of a lot of different concepts. So. Some folks have been working on some newer instruments. There's a thermometer, a moral distress thermometer, that some ethics consultants actually use during ethics consultations to try to discern whether moral distress is a, a key factor of the case. That's a little newer, so I don't know how that one will go. And then some folks are working on revising Mary Corley's instrument, and that's come out very, very recently. So it'll be interesting to see if we are able to modify them further and whether they're able to address some of the concerns we have with the instruments. So are there instruments to measure frequency and intensity? Yes, but they do have their limitations. As you use that particular measurement tool, as you mentioned, it's fairly, some of the questions are fairly nurse specific. And I'm wondering, as you've used it for other practitioners, have you have you changed those questions, or do you just let those questions be because they're part of this um, validated measurement tool? Typically, when you're measuring the frequency and intensity, they do use that tool, and that's one of the biggest limitations, is it just doesn't seem to work for other healthcare professionals. But the more they tweak it and the more they modify it, the more it loses its you know, validity and applicability. My other thought as you were describing the interviews was that it, it sounded almost like a catharsis for some of these individuals to, who were finally able to potentially talk about some issues that they may or may not have been able to talk about before, and I'm wondering if there is any structure in any of the ICUs that were examined for folks to debrief about cases or to speak about their own moral distress uh, in, in a safe environment. Well, I think what you're bringing up is kind of one of the takeaway lessons, if you will, that I personally came away with, which is we need a better way of, first of all, recognizing moral distress and and labeling it and naming it, and then we need to somehow deal with that. And I think we don't have the forum right now to always deal with that. We have set up debriefing sessions, and Courtney and the bioethics team has often um, helped facilitate some of these meetings during a case evolving where we as clinicians, physicians, nurses, social workers, consultants will sit down and talk about our differences and try to come to a um, kind of a group consensus, if we can, on some of the issues. But I don't think we actually do that enough, and I'm, there's not a lot of incentives to do that. As you know, we're, we're pushed to generate some kind of productivity 
And so that makes it difficult. But yes, I think we all would welcome something like that if, if it somehow could fit into our uh, work life. It certainly is quite challenging. I think it's worth adding that this was something experienced by all sorts of clinicians, regardless of experience. Um, I was surprised after one of the interviews when a very, very senior surgeon, a man that I greatly respect, sent me a text message after the interview saying, you know, thank you for the interview. I found it very cathartic. It felt like therapy. That tells me that it was uh, constructive in some ways for them, but it was also very surprising, I think, even to them. Interesting. And I do thank you for the positive plug for a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have great respect for surgeons. <laughs> Could we go back uh, just a little bit? Because you had mentioned the influence of team dynamics on moral distress. And I wonder if, you, if one of you could perhaps elaborate, or both of you elaborate on that a little bit further as to how those team dynamics um, or team interactions influence moral distress. So team dynamics, I think they impact moral distress in large part because you're trying to respond to the politics and the professionalism that you need to maintain with your colleagues. And that could influence other aspects of your job. So, for an instance, I was surprised at the number of clinicians that described having to alter the content of their goals of care conversations with patients or families just as a means to try to accommodate that inter-team discordance. In other words, I'm about to have this conversation with the family about plans of care or goals of care. I think that a colleague is going to disagree with initiating goals of care conversations, so I'm going to keep it really light and superficial. Or I'm going to have an in-depth conversation with this patient or family, but I'm going to be sure to accommodate my colleagues' thoughts by saying, you know, others may disagree or let's have a team meeting or, or other things. And as a result, it, I think, compromises their professional integrity in the sense that they can't fully engage as the person they are as a professional because they're trying to accommodate all different colleagues within the team who may or may not agree with them. So you're thinking of multiple aspects in patient care, and as a result, it can kind of pull you in lots of different directions. I think that's probably the biggest source of how teams can impact moral distress. I agree completely, and I speak also as a clinician involved in these situations, but one of the things that I thought was very significant is that across the board, the people caring and involved with, the, with these patients uh, eventually develop some form of distancing or detachment from these cases when the team was not on the same page. And to me, I find that kind of frightening because I think we can all recognize that we have put ourselves in that situation. But, you know, distancing from the situation may be protective in a way to the individual, but it's certainly not what probably the patient and maybe the patient's families need at that point in time. So I think the fact that there's team discordance and it eventually leads to that distancing is a major problem. And they were really very explicit about the distancing. I mean, there were some transcripts where we were able to code it seven or eight times within one transcript, like even the explicit term, I will avoid the room, I will avoid the patient, I will step away from the situation because I can't change my colleague's perception. And that really explicit detail about distancing threw us off a little. I think we weren't anticipating that. Interesting. Uh, I think we could talk about this for hours and hours. It sounds as though you're 
suggesting and perhaps observing that discordance and moral distress may lead to inadequate plan of care discussions or inadequate communication with families. Am I, am I reading that correctly, or is that perhaps an element of this? I think that's correct. It's a qualitative study, so I think we have to be careful making definitive assertions, but there's definitely something going on there, and I think it's worth replicating because it just came up too much to turn an eye to it to think it doesn't exist. There's some sort of connection there. Can you describe what you found in terms of differences in a medical ICU versus a surgical ICU? Yeah, we found some some salient differences between those units. I think the medical unit is a little bit better about using constructive techniques to try to cope with their moral distress. And I don't know if that's, you know, because of their leadership, applied to Dr. Zimmerman, or if it's or if it's the circumstances and, you know, the cases they deal with, but they're definitely a little bit more constructive about how they handle their moral distress and there's there's a little bit greater team cohesion among them as well. The surgical unit had, I think, greater degrees of intra-team discordance. And I I think at a very basic level, it's because their teams are larger and a little less, I think, uh, intensivist focus up there. And I don't know, there might be some other dynamics going on there as well that we couldn't really tease out. But intra-team discordance was very prevalent and salient, and, and some of the maladaptive techniques really came through in that unit as well. And it wasn't really surprising to them. That was the interesting thing. When we reported back our findings through presentations, and I had one-on-one meetings with some of the leadership in those units, I think they kind of own it. The question is what to do about it, and that's the part we really don't know. Debriefing sessions is one way. Mentoring, we know, is very effective, but I don't know that that will really get rid of all of that moral distress. And I don't think you should, by the way, get rid of moral distress. I think some of it's healthy. Um, it tells me that someone's attentive to the moral domains of medicine, but it can also be destructive. It's an important point, I think, yeah. I'm wondering how, or if perhaps maybe you've identified this through some of your interviews or not, but are people able to identify their own moral distress? Are people generally, you think, aware of the moral distress as it's occurring? I will say that, you know, we all experience moral distress, whether we know that the signs that we are exhibiting are directly related may not always be at the forefront. So I think most people can relate with there's some days when you go in the ICU, whether you're the nurse or the intensivist or the social worker, you just don't want to have to deal with certain patient issues. From a nursing perspective, it becomes very obvious that when they ask for a reassignment or not to be assigned to a particular patient, that's a sign of moral distress. And again, I think recognizing that is important. You know, being irritable, fatigue, these are all potential signs of something affecting you. Just, you know, the day that you don't want to go into work, there's a reason behind it. The other thing is that When you have a distressing situation, there's a tendency, I think, to recall those other bad cases. And those kind of build up. And I think recognizing that as moral distress really would help. What we do sometimes now, after, particularly after this study, when we're doing our rounds, we'll discuss a case and there are issues. 
whether it be discordance with the family or the patient. And so we will actually on round say, this is an example of moral distress within our team. We are experiencing that. So, you know, we laugh a little, but I tend to think that acknowledging that we're in a difficult situation helps deal with it to some extent. The other manifestation that's kind of not specific to a, an individual case is as professional if someone asks you, would you send your child into the same profession, and you say, no. We discourage people from going into our profession, or we say we would never be an organ donor because of some of the cases you may have been involved with. So it's not just all related to the individual case. It may actually influence an individual's choices in a more general sense. Yeah, so Professor Bruce, I'm curious. So when, when you're doing an ethics consultation and you recognize moral distress, what is your role, or how do you how do you weed through that as a an ethics consultant? You know, that's a big area in the literature that's starting to come through in the ethics literature, in particular, is the services, the ethics consultation services, are starting to recognize that we've got to do something about it. We just don't always know what to do. So something that I generally do is if I notice there's moral distress, I'll actually literally ask the healthcare professional because I don't want to assume. And sometimes they're able to correct it for me and say, no, I actually think I, I'm just suffering from some psychological distress. I don't think it's quite moral distress. So I think by asking them explicitly, like defining it during the consultation, saying, are you feeling any of these things, X, Y, and Z, that can help me? And it can help them too. I think putting a label on it is often very useful. But that's the first thing we try to do during the consultation itself. And then another thing I try to ask is, how can I help you relieve some of this off of you? And sometimes it's honestly facilitating a family meeting or getting together a number of healthcare professionals and trying to protect the clinician a little bit. So something I'll try to do during a family meeting is as soon as their part is done in terms of providing the clinical presentation, if I notice a particular healthcare professional is really struggling with this case, like I can see them becoming fidgety or angry or upset during the family meeting, I'll actually try to create a break for them. Like, I understand you have clinical duties, you've given us the clinical presentation, are there any more questions, patient or family, you would like to ask the healthcare professional before they step out of the room and get back to their patient care? So by doing that, I'm trying to protect them a little bit, get them out of the room while still moving the case forward. So that's another thing I try to do is offload a little bit onto myself if I can, as long as it's within my role boundaries. And another thing we try to do is debriefing sessions to the extent people like them. I, I have a little bit of an issue with them only because you got to make them voluntary, but if you make them voluntary, people often can't go, and sometimes it's unclear to me what should actually be the marker of a truly successful debriefing session. So we know they work, but I don't know what about them makes them work and what constitutes a less than effective debriefing session. So all of this to say that we have some techniques that we think works a little bit during the consultation, but we still don't quite have a good grasp on what is the best way to intervene on moral distress, particularly when the case will often involve a lot of ethical issues as well. So I'm trying to work through that part as well as helping that particular healthcare professional. And some of that responsibility they have to take on themselves. I mean, I think we can develop system-level interventions, debriefing sessions, mentoring, we can do some of that for them, but they have to be willing to work on it themselves, and that requires a lot of self-care, and I don't think we are always the best at self-care. So trying to talk to them about what they should really do themselves is sometimes a little bit challenging. I think from my observation, we're nowhere near the best at self-care. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Zimmerman, I'm wondering from your perspective, 
you talked a little bit about some of the maladaptive behaviors and the more perhaps uh, healthy behaviors. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that as well as what can we do in terms of team infrastructure, working with our teams to at least help support each other and come to, I guess, maybe is, is the right answer, you know, coming to more agreement on plans of care or trying to figure out where the moral distress lies? Well, I think there's many things we do. Um, it was interesting to me that I think the physicians didn't express much in the way of venting as a way of coping sometimes with moral distress, but, you know, we all like to moan and groan. And I think venting is something we probably all do. Maybe we don't admit to it. But what we try to do, at least in our medical ICU, is we actually, the nurses and physicians, the team, you know, we actually vent with each other instead of always separately, although I think it is helpful for physicians to vent to physicians. And, of course, nurses uh, in our study seem to feel like having a venting with their colleague was helpful. So I think the ability to vent is helpful, but physicians usually don't take the time to do that except kind of on the fly. I was just talking to Courtney before we started about physicians in particular because, you know, you talk about debriefing and mentoring. It's hard to get physicians in the same place to do that in a very busy day. We have had meetings of the team and tried to get consultants on the case as well as the primary physician and the intensivist together which really opens up communication, and I think that is very constructive and helpful. It's very, very difficult to do. So if I could have a solution, whatever it would be, would be something that we could use during our day-to-day activities in a busy ICU, but I don't know exactly what that would be. So I'm afraid I don't have a complete answer, but I think communication within the team is certainly a very big part of any solution. I think respectful communication, respecting that uh, opinion that's different from ours is also important, and listening to people will go a long way, I think. I'm just thinking, as as you pointed out earlier, one of you pointed out earlier, it's not as if we want moral distress to go away, but perhaps if we could help people better identify when there is moral distress, it's at least a trigger that, hey, something's not quite right here, and what should we be talking about to uh, move forward? Yeah, we actually, uh, we added a field within our intake process for ethics consultation because as a result of the interviews, we were surprised at how many clinicians or healthcare professionals will actually call and literally say at the very beginning of the call, I'm dealing with moral distress and I'm calling you because of that. So there is definitely an awareness factor, and that's why I think putting a label on it is so important because when they recognize that's a good deal of the, the way in the, to addressing it, frankly knowing what it is, and then getting a better sense of how they could work on it. Yeah. Thank you uh, so much for your time and what I think is a very important contribution that certainly opens up a lot of questions as well. Are there other points that you'd like to get across that we did not cover or other thoughts you have? I think something we should really let people know is that we wouldn't have been able to do this without the healthcare professionals. I think they were extraordinarily candid. And without that raw data to really work with, we wouldn't have been able to put together, you know, to really elucidate the themes that we found. And it's really because of their, the richness in which they spoke and the candor that, that we were able to put this together. So it's really, it's really them that the credit should go to. 
Well, Professor Bruce and Dr. Zimmerman, again, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, certainly look forward to uh, more contributions uh, similar to this in the future. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Have you listened to SCCM Pod 231 on Family Presence, Evidence versus Emotion, or SCCM Pod 232 on Assessing Family Satisfaction? SCCM wants to know how these Project Dispatch-sponsored podcasts changed or influenced your practice. To provide feedback, contact SCCM's Director of Quality, Lori Harmon, at lharmon at sccm.org. Or to learn more about SCCM's Project Dispatch, visit www.sccm.org slash project dispatch. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCM, is an associate professor of surgery at Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in the Division of Acute Care Surgery. He is director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Center for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the ICU, communication and language in medicine, clinical ethics, and global surgery. Board certified in surgery, surgical critical care, neurocritical care, and hospice and palliative medicine, Weinstein is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American College of Critical Care Medicine. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.